Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. We're starting the recording now, so please turn off your cell phones. We've already checked the payment basket, and we're changing our layout a little bit this time. We eat first, and we listen to our speaker and question them after. Uh, Our speaker today is Dr. Ted Morton. He's currently an executive in residence at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary and senior fellow, Energy and Environment, at the Manning Foundation. He recently served as Minister of Energy for the Government of Alberta. That was in 2011-2012. Prior to that, he was Minister of Finance in 2010 and Minister of Sustainable Resources Development from 2006 to 2009. Now, we've been hearing lately that Alberta will reduce her dependence on raw bitumen exports and create more jobs with upgrading and processing here in the province rather than in Texas. Uh, Dr. Morton's background certainly provides him with insight into early, earlier examples of such initiatives. He urges that economics be considered as we go forward. And the title of his talk is Refine It Where You Mine It, Value Added, or Risky Business. Welcome to SACPA, Ted. Thank you, Duane. Thank all of you for coming out. I apologize that I arrived uh, 10 or 15 minutes late and reversed the normal order, but uh, I'll try to make up for that now, and I'll try to shed uh, more light uh, than heat uh, on this subject. So refine it where you mine it, uh, value-added or risky business. Well, my message is that it's both. Um, I'm going to tell you a story, uh, two stories, really. Uh, One is my experience uh, in the conservative government from 2004 to 2008 and the Northwest Upgrader. And the second story is, I'll say, just Alberta's story, earlier attempts at diversification under the Lougheed and uh, Getty era. So uh, the moral of my story is, um, in government policy as in life, Uh, the path to hell is often paved with good intentions. And um, so watch out for good intentions. Most of what, when it comes to government policy, you want good results. Uh, Government diversification policies aren't something new. Uh, The track record in Alberta is there. Uh, If you go back and look at the Lougheed and Getty era, uh, Others have identified, and I've more recently brought up to date, uh, over $2 billion of losses between 1971 and 1993. And that's when $2 billion was, you know, that's when a billion dollars was a billion dollars, right? Uh, you know, our budget was less than $10 billion now. We're over $50 billion. Um, so a billion dollars in those days was a lot. Um, more recently, uh, in the government I was in, the government of Ed Stelmack, 
Uh, I was there with the initiative and, and uh, at least the early stages of the uh, Northwest uh, upgrader, sometimes called the Sturgeon upgrader or the Redwater upgrader. I'll talk about that. And basically, uh, over my protest, uh, we basically entered into a 30-year agreement uh, to pay a toll to process 50,000 barrels of bitumen a day, which, if you work it out, uh, comes to about a $26 billion IOU over 30 years. And I'll give you some details on that. So uh, as an introductory remark, uh, my advice on, on diversification and, and upgrading in particular is be cautious. Um, as a general rule, as a general rule, if a, if a, if a, if a enterprise, if a business is viable, there's a pretty good chance, and by viable I mean makes a profit, gets a return on the investment, there's a pretty good chance that someone in the private sector is already doing it. And, or to put it a little differently, uh, governments aren't very good at picking winners, but uh, losers are pretty good at picking governments. Um, okay, so refine it where you mine it. The intentions are certainly good, uh, but what, we, what you want, what we all want, of course, are, are good results. So earlier this year, I published uh, two studies. Uh, I was joking at the table that uh, eight years ago, when I was nine, ten years, I guess, when I was getting ready to go into politics, I, I tell my friends, well, they say the pen is mightier than the sword, right? The ideas are more powerful. I, pens, but I wanted to know what that sword felt like. Well, now I've, I had eight years of the sword, and uh, <clears throat> I didn't do that well with the sword, so I'm back with the pen. And uh, I'm probably better with the pen than I was with the sword. So uh, there are two different studies that uh, School of Public Policy that I've done. Uh, one is uh, specifically on the Northwest Upgrader, which uh, I was involved in, and I'll say something about. The other is a longer study. It's more historical, looks back on the Lougheed Getty era and attempts at diversification then. Both of these papers are available on the uh, uh, School of Public Policy, University of Calgary website or you can just Google Morton Upgrading Diversification, and you can get those. So the, uh, the more recent one is autobiographical, as I said, while I was there. The other one's historical. Um, and it, it was my experience with Northwest Upgrader, and particularly after I left government, uh, I was not happy with the deal we did, and you'll see why in a moment. Uh, and, but I became aware that there was – I was dimly aware. You know, I remember MagCan. I remember Novotel. But they were just kind of fragments. So I actually did the research with, with the help of Meredith McDonald, the, my co-author. Meredith, Meredith and I went back and dug up uh, the records and what had been written in the uh, 70s and 80s at earlier diversification attempts. Now, uh, those of you who have uh, hair the color of mine or maybe – no hair. Uh, these will sound uh, pretty familiar. Uh, maybe not all of them, but some of them. Uh, Novotel, the famous uh, first attempt at cell phones, that cost us, by us I mean the government of Alberta, but by extension Alberta taxpayers, that was a $600 million bill. Swan Hills Waste Treatment Plant, still there, cost us money every year, but at the time that we pushed it out the door, that was about $400 million. Uh, the Lloyd Minster by print by provincial upgrader. Uh, when we sold our share in that, we uh, got $400 million less than we put into it. 
Miller Western Pulp, less familiar in southern Alberta. Gainers, you all remember our old friend Peter Pocklington. Uh, <clears throat> he, uh, he pocketed about $200 million of uh, unrepaid loans. And then MagCan, Magnesium Canada. Every time you drive up uh, Highway 2 uh, past High River, you can see that monument sitting there. That ran for exactly one day. It was open for business for one day. And uh, we sunk $164 million into that. So the track record isn't good. Uh, if you want the details, you can look at the, uh, look at the paper. Now, there were successes, I'm, and, and the paper identifies the successes. Uh, Sin Crude, the first kind of jump, government jump-starting of the early days of oil sands production. Alberta Energy Corp., uh, that probably sounds vaguely familiar, uh, but if I said in Canada, everybody knows in Canada, Alberta Energy Corp. was the original founding company, if you like, that eventually became in Canada. So, you know, a, a good success story. Uh, there's some others. The petrochemical, uh, petrochemical uh, operations uh, just east of Red Deer and Joffrey, uh, those were government incentives on that. So there are some successes in that track record. What I would point out, though, of there's six successes that I that identify in the uh, in the uh, historical paper, the study that goes back. Four of the six are in the um, hydrocarbon, the oil, gas, and coal area. So they don't really achieve much in the way of diversification. They're successes, but if the goal is diversification, you're still tied into the energy sector. Now. Uh, Alberta's poor track record on diversification or value-add policies is not surprising to most economists. There's a, there's a body of literature out there that studies what's called government-led forced growth, where the government intervenes to try to incubate or incent uh, new businesses to diversify the economic base. It's not something that's unique to Alberta. It's been done in other provinces. It's been done in U.S. states. It's been done in other countries. And the, the economic literature on this has found, well, has, explains these, this poor track record by the following four or five reasons. First of all, most of these projects are driven by politics, not by economics, by the desire of a government, and particularly a premier or a prime minister, to sort of show something to the voters, particularly in a hurry for the next election, right? So... Again, most of you have business backgrounds. You know, it, it takes a while to get a good business plan together to execute it and so forth. Politicians are usually in a hurry because next election is only four years away. Uh, there's a lack of expertise uh, on the government side. I don't care whether it's upgrading or petrochemicals or you name it. Uh, governments are not in the business of business. And so then when they negotiate with people who are in the business of business, uh, they, they tend to get out negotiated because they don't have the expertise. And that certainly was the case with Northwest Upgraders, you'll see in a moment. The tendency to be out negotiated by private sector partners is exacerbated. It's made worse by the fact that not always, but way too frequently, cronyism creeps into. By cronyism, I mean friends of the government, friends of politicians. And I'm not, I'm not signaling out here the Alberta PCs, this is 
these are studies based on different parties, different provinces, even different. This is politicians in general. It's tough to take the politics out of politics, okay? And so cronyism, doing sweet deals with friends of the government or friends of cabinet ministers makes the problem worse. And then finally, kind of the culmination of all of that, governments tend to take in these types of joint ventures or forced diversification, governments tend to take almost all the risk, put up most of the money, and if there are any profits, typically get very little of them. And as I tell my students, we, I'm teaching Alberta energy politics now, of course, I never taught uh, before. I said, it's basically when you have politicians, and again, this isn't Tories or liberals or Indies, it's just, it's, a, it's politicians. It's human nature. If you're playing with other people's money, it's easier to be bold and take risk, right? <laughs> it's like Monopoly, right? You know? um, and that's what pol- this is what politicians are playing with other people's money when they do this. And for all, all the other reasons I've given, t- the tendency is not to do very well. Okay, fast forward then to uh, more recent times, the 2004 to 2012, the eight years I was up there, six, six years in cabinet and the uh, the genesis and finally inking of the Northwest Upgrader deal. Um, it started off very simply. Uh, you know, early oil sands production was around the mines uh, at Syncrude, Suncor. They had they were integrated. They had upgraders right on site, and so most of the bitumen being produced here was upgraded here. But then, as the production of bitumen has shifted away from mining and into what's called SAG-D, steam-assisted gravity drainage. In other words, for the deeper, you can, only sur- you can only mine the bitumen that's down to about 100 feet. When it gets deeper than that, there's too much overburden. So this other technique where you inject steam in one well and have another well that then collects the, the heated and, 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 and moving oil or other types of solvents to get the hydrocarbon molecules moving these types of operations are smaller, less expensive, and there are a lot smaller players involved, and they typically don't have, they don't have, not typically, none of them have, uh, have upgraders, uh, in part because they don't need upgraders. Upgraders are designed to deal with certain characteristics of mined bitumen, the water content, and the, uh, the silt that's still in there. So while most of the bitumen we produce today comes out of mines, over the next couple of decades, it'll come out of the other, not mines, but the SAG-D and other extraction methods because most of the bitumen is deeper than 100 feet, okay? So the, the shift will be for more, less and less mining, which means, and this was the trend already, less and less upgrading. So with the production, with the, with the predictions even then, I think when I, right today, oil sands production is around 2 million, yeah, 2 million barrels a day. When I came in, it was like 500,000. But you could see that surge was coming. And since the surge was coming out of SAG-D and the alternative methods, you could see without any government intervention, uh, the likelihood of more upgraders being built was less, was low. So there would be more and more bitumen produced and less and less of it being upgraded here. So the initial program was called BRIC, B-R-I-K. Bitumen, royalty, and kind. And it was a very simple idea. Uh, it was low cost, low risk, and I supported it 100%. And 
And basically what it said was to people, we said to anybody who wants to build an upgrader, we will guarantee you a 30-year supply of bitumen. Because, again, you're not going to spend $4 billion or $5 billion or $8 billion, as you'll see in a minute, building an upgrader if you don't have a guaranteed supply of 20, 20 or 30 years. It takes you 10 or 15 years just to get your initial costs back, right? You don't really begin to make any money until, until the latter years. So nobody, who, other than people like Syncrude and Suncor, who had the big mines right there, none of these smaller players, no one was going to build upgraders unless they had a guaranteed 20 or 30-year supply of bitumen. So that's how brick came in to existence. The government would simply take, instead of if you owed us a royalty, uh, instead of paying us cash for that royalty, you'd give us the equivalent amount of bitumen for it, and then we could provide the bitumen to anybody doing an upgrader. So low risk, low cost. Basically, the government was just a middleman, just saying, if you want to build it, we'll make sure you have it. And for the first year or two, this looked very promising. Uh, there were as many as... Um, as many as, um, what do I have here? Five upgraders being built and six others being planned in 2006, 2007. Then 2008 hit, and everybody remembers 2008. And by the time the dust cleared out of that, the ones that were under construction were finished, but everything that was in the planning stages was dropped except for one, and that was Northwest Upgrader. So it became clear that the BRIC program, as originally conceived, wasn't going to get the trick done. And so then what next? Uh, at this point, um, this is where politics rather than economics began to drive this deal. Uh, Mr. Stelmack and some of the other Edmonton area uh, MLAs in our cabinet were keen to see this go forward. Sturgeon County, just northwest, northeast of Edmonton, in a couple of cabinet ministers' writings next to Mr. Stelmack's writing. This was something they wanted to deliver. And so a new deal was struck. And under this new deal, instead of just selling the bitumen to the upgrader and saying, you, know, you upgrade it and whatever you, whatever you do with it, whatever you can sell it for, uh, it, it's your risk. Under the new deal, the government would no longer sell the bitumen to the upgrader. Rather, we would just contract, and this is what we did with North, Northwest, we contracted with Northwest that we, would, we, the government, would keep the bitumen, we'd pay you a fee for processing it, and the fee is called a toll. We pay you a toll, and then you give it back to us once it's been upgraded, and then we take it to market. And if the price is higher than the cost than the toll that we've had to pay, good, we'll make some money. But if it's not, well, we're going to lose money. The, ri the risk is on us. So it, it shifted the risk to the government, the market risk, and as we'll see, some other risks to the government. This is when I began to get a little nervous about this. And again, I've, uh, I've written about it already, uh, but I, I was the minority voice. I, and again, this, this was a complicated piece of work, as you can imagine, and as you'll see in a moment. Uh, not, caucus was briefed on it, uh, but even cabinet really, it, what, you know, cabinet of course approves these decisions, but basically it was a working group of about four, four, 
four ministers and some, some senior civil servants. And I was a part of that working group. And uh, I was the skeptic. I was the naysayer. Uh, I got outvoted. Now, the toll is obvious. What, what is the government going to pay the toll to get this bitumen upgraded? The biggest driver of the toll is the construction cost, okay? Because the toll, what the, what the upgrader has to receive is enough money to cover the cost of construction plus the cost of operating and then, of course, still sell for a profit. So the capital co construction cost was a key factor. By 2011, capital costs, the construction costs had gone from five and a half excuse me, from four from four and a half billion to five point seven billion. And we insisted then, again, I, I'm gonna take some credit for this, that the maximum construction cost, cap upfront capital costs that could be built into the toll was six and a half billion dollars. Okay? So remember that. The capital costs for purposes of being built in the toll were capped at six and a half billion dollars. And we were told repeatedly that that was no problem, things would be built. They'd done the studies. Again, the paper has some very strong words from uh, two of the principals involved, uh, Ian McGregor, uh, Murray Edwards. They reassured us that $6.5 was good. Okay, 2012 election comes along. Uh, Ted Morton is history. I get defeated in uh, the re redone writing. So I go from Foothills, Rocky View, to Chestermere, Rocky View, wasn't quite as popular in uh, Chestermere. That was the end of uh, the political career for me. But the following year, 20, 2013, uh, they break ground. It's all smiles in the fall. Three months later at Christmas, and again, whenever governments announce something just before Christmas, there's a reason, right? They hope you're not paying attention. So just before Christmas 2013, it's announced that construction costs have risen to $8.5 billion from $6.5 billion. The expected completion date is pushed back 12 months, and there's an additional guarantee of a $300 million loan to take care of odds and ends to get construction taken care of. Now, the first, when I saw that, because, again, being a, a policy nut, I read, even at Christmas time, I read the papers. I said, $8.5 billion, what is that going to do to the toll, right? Because the toll is going to have to be increased to capture and repay those additional construction costs. But there was no reporting of what that did to the toll. Okay, in June, the government year is April 1st to March 31st, and all the departments release their annual reports in June because you know, it takes a few, few months after the year is over to get everything together. So in late June, again, when everybody's going on vacation, stampede's about to start, uh, school's over, hopefully when nobody's paying attention, on page 145, in footnote 19, uh, the new toll is announced, right? Uh, the new toll, uh, now, <clears throat> rather than the total, again, this is over a 30-year period, 50,000 barrels a day, the old toll at, at uh, the old toll at, uh, at uh, six and a half billion, the maximum would have been uh, $19 billion over the 30-year period, it's now at $26 billion, which then if you divide $26 billion by 50,000 barrels a day times 365 days a year, basically that 
that works out to a $63 a barrel toll payment that you're paying to get your bitumen processed. And at $63 a barrel, you can't make any money, okay? You just, by the time you've paid that toll, you can't go out and then sell the upgraded bitumen for anywhere close to that. Now, I published this in uh, March, I believe. About a month after that, I received an email from a former student that's now in the financial business in Toronto. And he sent me a copy of a report by Moody's. Moody's, you all have kind of a vague notion, they're a bond rating agency. Bonds are when governments or businesses go out and borrow a bunch of money, they sell bonds, right? And it turned out my former student follows this stuff because he's in the business in Toronto. And he sent me a copy of a Moody's report on the bonds that are being the bonds that are being sold to finance the Northwest uh, upgrader. Because again, the cost now is well, hopefully it's at twenty six billion. I'll come back to that in a minute. But eighty percent of this is financed by borrowing. Okay? The the actual down payment by the two principal partners is only twenty percent of the construction cost. The rest is going to be well plus the $300 million loan that they got. Uh, the rest is going to be borrowed. So I, this is not a public document, but I have a copy of it. And uh, probably, but it's, they, sent, they send it out to banks, hedge funds, uh, pension funds. Some of you have pensions, which I suspect you do. After you hear what I'm about to read, you're going to hope that your pension fund has bought some of these bonds, okay? So I'll just... I'll just quote a couple of, again, this is, I'll distinguish between what Ted Morton says and what the Moody's report says. Quote, this is a highly unusual upgrade or refinery project in the sense that many of the risks normally encountered by a refinery are not present for Northwest. <clears throat> Quote, quoting, continuing, Northwest is not exposed to a wide range of risks, including margin risk, demand risk, interest rate risk, customer credit risk, foreign exchange risk, force majeure risk, operating cost, and it has limited exposure even to availability cost, end of quote. Quote, the debt tolls related to debt financing are due no matter what, including delays in construction, that is post-toll commencement date, non-completion of the facility, poor operating performance, unavailability of bitumen, I quote, continuing, we note that there is no limit on the ultimate amount of senior debt used to fund construction and interest during construction that can be recovered under the tolls, nor is there a long stop date to complete the construction of the process. And finally, uh, the government and CNRL are obligated to provide their share of, well, I'll pass, I'll skip that, uh, I can skip that too. Um, quoting, the debt tolls covering debt service for any additional debt deemed to be debt financing are due no matter what. In both cases, lenders are protected, and here I'll just summarize, lenders are protected if, if the construction is not completed on time, tolls, tolls start being paid on June 1st, 2018, so hopefully most of us will be here on June 1st, 2018. Whether it's operating or not, 
tolls have to be starting to be paid on June, June 1st, 2018. And again, should the construction price be in excess of the construction budget of $8.5 billion, all debt financing required to complete the project can be added to the toll. So now there's not even a cap on the $8.5 billion. So you've heard enough. This is a great deal for the bond buyers. And so hope that your pension fund or if you have any, if you have investments in your RSP, hope that who you've invested with or have stock in, that they bought some of these bonds. But it's not a good story for Albertans, as I, I think you can see. The hard, cold facts when it comes to refineries and upgrader is that it's virtually impossible to build a, a profitable one here in Alberta, probably almost impossible anywhere in Canada. Our construction costs are too high, particularly here, the labor cost. Um, the fact that our, our structures have to function in, in temperatures of minus 40, you know, that doesn't happen on the Gulf Coast. That makes it expensive. Distance to markets, not so much upgraders, but refineries are always built next to big population centers. Because your refineries, you have a big, just a single pipe coming in, bringing the oil, but refineries typically produce six or eight or 10 or 12 different products, refined products. Each of those has to have their own delivery system by truck. Trucking is expensive. Pipe is cheap. So that's why in New York, all the refineries are next to, or down New Jersey, or why they're, why they're refining in Sarnia for Toronto or in the lower mainland of Ontario. Montreal has a refinery. Uh, Los Angeles, the, long, the refineries are uh, down at Long Beach. San Francisco, they're over in Oakland, right? So refineries are close to where the consumers are. And, you know, there are 4 million of us, but that's not enough in Alberta. And plus, we don't have access to ports. I won't get into that. Um, I'll skip that. Okay. I know what you're thinking. Just because the, the, the Tories screwed this up so bad, badly, does it mean that Notley and the NDP couldn't do better? And let's hope to hell they can do better, okay? I agree, I agree on that. They, they, they couldn't possibly negotiate a worse deal than... Uh, than the Tories did uh, with Northwest. But again, my caution is the track record is against it, not just in Alberta, but in other provinces and other countries as well. If you go back and look at those, so now let's, let's talk for a minute. Instead of talking about failures, let's look at success. What did some of those other successes look like? Sincrude, Alberta Energy Corp, Encana, the petrochemicals and Joffrey. They played to Alberta's strengths, they were projects that didn't compete directly with other businesses already operating in the province. If you want to scare away capital in a hurry, start competing with, with a company that, or with a group that's already invested their money here. They can demonstrate long-term viability without ongoing government support or ongoing subsidies, i.e. Year, a 30-year tolling contract. They're based on comparative advantage. You know, what comparative advantage does Alberta have? Our comparative advantage is hydrocarbons. You know, for better or for worse, their hydrocarbons, whether it's gas or coal or oil or, 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 or gas liquids, under almost every part of, of this province. And so we have access to raw materials. We have human capital. We have ingenuity. We have entrepreneurial skill. And then do these projects make use of local labor, and do they develop forward and backward linkages with other 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 businesses in the, in the, in the, in the province. Those were the keys to success. 
Okay, I'm going to finish then. Just give you one example of a, of, an, of a diversification project that did work, the incremental ethane extraction program. Am I getting the hook? Okay. Impossible. I can't even remember the name of this thing. IEPP, Incremental Ethane Extraction Program. In 60 seconds or less, the up, the government program, it's a government program that $350 million, excuse me, um, 300, yeah, $350 million was committed to this program between 2006 and 2021. So it has a stop date to it, right? It doesn't go on forever. And what it does is it said to people, if you'll go out and capture the off-gas that comes out the stacks of the upgraders, the, existing, the big ones at Syncrude and Suncor uh, up in the oil sands, capture that gas, take it off and extract the ethane from it, and then send the ethane through back to our petrochemical, uh, our petrochemical sector down in uh, Joffrey, out just east of Red Deer, we'll give you a $1.80 credit towards royalties that you can go sell to any company that's having to pay royalties. And so what this incentive did, the $1.80 a barrel, is that Williams Energy, a company out of Oklahoma, got together with um, Nova, the people that run the big, uh, the big petrochems in Joffrey, and they, they spent several hundred million dollars building a way to both to capture the off-gas, get it down to Edmonton, extract the ethane, and then send the ethane down to Joffrey. And it's estimated now that that $350 million investment, it's all been used up now, has gen generated several billion dollars so $350 million has generated several billion dollars worth of capital investment. And this is ongoing. And um, in the question period it may come up, the uh, Canadian Energy Research Institute just identified petrochemical as an opportunity for value added in Alberta. And here's a program that's on the books. It's working. And so I'm supposed to leave you with a question. And the question is... Uh, we know that Premier Notley is going to propose some diversification initiatives. There will be some trial balloons floated pretty soon, I suspect. So when those trial balloons get floated, uh, ask yourself the following questions. Is the project being proposed based on Alberta's comparative advantage, access to raw materials, access to markets, labor productivity, and so forth? Does it compete directly with any other existing uh, Alberta industries? Does it make use of local labor? as well as develop the forward and backward linkages, creating jobs, either selling or purchasing things? And does it, and this is the key one, does it, does it demonstrate long-term viability without ongoing subsidies? In other words, no 30-year contracts, but, you know, a five-year a five window that after that five years, the message is we've helped you recover your capital cost at the front end, but how you do from here on is your business, and if you succeed, we want you to succeed, but if you fail, it's on you, not on the Alberta taxpayers. If these trial balloons pass this test, it might just work, but notice that I said might, uh, not will. Uh, don't forget my message. In government policy, as in life, uh, the path to hell is paved with good intentions. Thank you. <laughs>